Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. We're going to jump right in today. I'm going to try and uh, preach a shorter than normal sermon, so it's only going to be, yeah, marvelous. That was not the place where you clap. <laughs> where I'm going to, I'm going to attempt I'm, to go a little bit longer than I was planning now. Um, and then Tracy's, Tracy's actually going to come up uh, toward the end of my message and just share some things, I think, coming out of this, some of the things uh, in the rhythm of us as a church family, uh, and some things that are coming up in December, how we can walk this out together. So we're in this series, and there's only a, a week left after today, after this week. We're in this series that we've been calling Flourish. It's a series through the Beatitudes at the very front of the Sermon on the Mount, this largest collection of Jesus' teachings where he gets up on a hill and this natural amphitheater is created where he can speak to a crowd. This is the largest collection of his teachings put down all at once, and it starts out with what's been called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes is just a word um, which means blessed are, right? Blessed are, and it goes into these statements of blessed are this and blessed are that. And over and over and over, Jesus makes these statements that seem kind of like paradoxical to the way the world works. They seem upside down. He starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. And you think, that's not what I would expect. I would expect the rich to be called blessed. And over and over, Jesus is repainting what it looks like to live the good life. And so, as a church, we've said, we love the Bible, we love the Word of God, we take it very, very seriously, but sometimes in English, we stumble around on this word blessed, and we start to, we start to make it sound like, if you do these things, then God will give you good things in life. And that's really not what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes, right? It's not a transaction to be given. He's saying, I don't, I'm not giving you something to live up to. I'm giving you something to live into. And so because the word blessed or blessed can be confusing for us, we're saying it really is getting at the heart of flourishing. What does it mean to thrive? What's it mean to really live, to be fully alive, to flourish? And that's what Jesus is getting at. And so we're intentionally saying flourishing are the poor in spirit, right? To remind us that this is not a transaction, I love what Eugene Peterson wrote about the Beatitudes here. He says, this is what it looks like to be human in the God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. So if you want to be fully human as God intended, as he made you, as he loves you, as he made this world to be, we live into these Beatitudes, these flourishing statements. And so last week we stood, we read the whole thing. I'm going to invite you to stand again. We're going to read the whole of the Beatitudes, all 12 verses, and then we're going to jump in today on what it means to be a peacemaker. Would you stand? In Matthew 5, starting in verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can have a seat. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for not hiding from us, but revealing yourself to us, and not only revealing yourself, but revealing us to us, revealing who we were made to be, revealing how this world was created and what your intention for this is. Help us to hear from you this morning, and help us to not just hear, but help us to understand and help us to be changed by you, to be renewed by you. We give you permission to change the way we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed or flourishing are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And I want to go real simple this morning in three points. I want to talk about the word peace. What is he saying? There's uh, peace. What does that uh, mean? And then peacemakers. The second point is, so what's it mean to be a peacemaker? Okay? And then the third is that phrase that he said, for they will be called sons of God. What is he talking about there? We're going to break this uh, verse up into three different sections. Peace. Let's start there. Peace in Greek is uh, irene. Is a Greek word, irene. And in Hebrew, this word peace is shalom. You've probably heard shalom before, right? Irene and peace, they go hand in hand. And they carry with it not just peace as we might first understand it, but it's way, way, way bigger. It's not just the absence of negative. It's not just the absence of conflict. This arene or shalom, this peace, is everything which makes for a person's highest good. So when we travel to Senegal uh, and other Arab nations, they'll greet each other in, in a phrase that's uh, assalam malakum. And that actually is really rich in meaning. It means peace be upon you. Peace be with you. So we say, hey, how you doing? They're saying, peace be with you. And it's a greeting, and you walk by. There's actually a really interesting cadence that goes back and forth. And it's just so much a part of their rhythm in exchange with each other. But they're wishing for peace. And they're not just wishing for absence of conflict. It's getting back to this kind of peace. Not just freedom from trouble, but enjoyment of all good. This is emotional, physical, relational, environmental, spiritual peace and harmony. Tim Keller wrote about shalom. He said, we translate it peace. But in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It describes a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied. Natural gifts are faithfully and fruitfully employed, all under the arc of God's love. And Keller uses this. I think, really fantastic uh, illustration. He talks about a beautiful fabric, and he said, if I threw a thousand threads onto the table, 
They wouldn't be a fabric. They'd just be threads laying on top of each other. Threads become a fabric when each one has been woven over, under, around, and through every other one. The more interdependent they are, the more beautiful they are. The more interwoven they are, the stronger and warmer they are. So he says, God made the world with billions of entities, but he didn't make them to be an aggregation or a whole bunch of somethings just heaped in a cluster. Rather, he made them to be in a beautiful, harmonious, knitted, webbed, interdependent relationship with each other. That's peace. That's shalom. That's arene. That's the world as God intended. It's not just the absence of conflict. This is flourishing. This is what Jesus came to say. This is what I want, I want you to live into. This is what you were made for. And then he says, he says, flourishing are the peacemakers. So the way that the world was made, the way that you were made, the way that we're supposed to be interconnected relationally all throughout, like beautiful plan and intention of God. You were made for that. Now I want you to be peacemakers. Now, it's interesting that he doesn't say peace lovers. It's interesting that he doesn't say uh, conflict avoiders. Now, this is significant because it's a, I think this is a full-on challenge to conflict avoiders like me. My first desire often when conflict approaches is to minimize it or sweep it under the rug or to make it go away. I want a quick and easy peace. And that's not at all what Jesus is saying, I have this for you. He said, for the conflict avoider, to be a peacemaker uh, is a call up, right? I want you to rise into something that you don't live by. When things get tough, I have a tendency, a natural tendency to withdraw. I'll hide away. Man, Leslie sees this. If we get into a tough conversation at home, I, sometimes I will literally put my head down or I will look away. Like I, I just have this instinct to withdraw. And she's good at calling me back out of it. I say, don't stay there. Don't go away. I have far too often thought that the absence of conflict means peace. Have you ever felt like that? Or aimed just at that? Like, I want peace. And all I mean is I want it to be quiet in our home. I want peace. All I mean is I, I want to stop being attacked. I want the negative to leave the room. That's what I mean by peace. And if that's you, it certainly has been me. Jesus is saying, I have more for you. I have more than just the absence of conflict. Now, here's the challenge. People who merely love an easy, quick peace, and they fail to engage trouble. And they're only letting it then build up for the future. This peace that Jesus talks about doesn't come from evasion of issues. It comes from facing them and dealing with them and conquering them. We don't just sit back and accept things because we're apathetic or because we're afraid. To make peace means we engage in a struggle. So, do you think that the world is in need of peace? Yeah. Right? A thousand times over. A thousand times over. This world is in desperate need of peace. Individuals are walking around broken. Relationships are broken. Systems are broken. Whole communities are broken. 
Tracy's going to share about Dressember in a little bit. And the only reason Dressember exists is because of the brokenness in our world and the desire to make peace and enter into the struggle. We're called to be peacemakers. That starts by looking around and recognizing the brokenness, declaring this is not the way God intended. All of this going on, all of the brokenness in me and uh, around me is not the way God intended. Some have gone so far as to say that to make peace, we first have to declare war. And what they're saying with that is not to say we, we need to increase the violence, but to recognize the war and not sit passively by as the war rages on all around us and we just ostrich. We put our heads in the sand and we just pretend that it's not going on. To declare war doesn't mean to initiate. To declare war says, I'm no longer going to sit passively by and let this happen around me. I'm going to engage. We declare war. It's different from the, world, the way the world declares war. Often, the way the world declares war says, I want that. You have it. I'm going to take it from you. We're called to engage in a different battle. We follow Jesus. How did he go to war? He didn't add to the violence. He got engaged. And he did it sacrificially. Mark 10, 45 says, Even the Son of Man, which was one of Jesus' favorite names for himself, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus engages by sacrifice. John 3.16 says that God engages by giving, right? For God loved the world so much that he gave. It cost him, but his heart was to engage in the battle through sacrifice. We want to follow Jesus. We would be mistaken to think that we could stand here and say we want to follow Jesus and not sacrifice. We want to follow Jesus and not get on the giving end of engagement. That's, that's not following Jesus. To follow Jesus is to sacrifice. We take our cues from him. To be a peacemaker is to sacrifice for the good and the healing of others. So I'm going to read an extended passage in Hebrews 12, 14 through 21. This is a picture of what the church looks like when it's operating as Jesus intends. Jesus says, or the word says, bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil 
with good. So the ethic of Jesus is always self-giving. It's always peacemaking. It says here, rejoice with those who rejoice. You're not rejoicing with people simply because you're happy. You're rejoicing with people because they're happy. Right? So that means I can be having a bad day and still be rejoicing because somebody else is celebrating. It says mourn with those who mourn. That doesn't mean I have to be sad. That means if I know that someone is sad in my community, I engage with that. I enter into that with them. And I mourn because they're mourning. Paul talks about it a little bit differently later on in the chapter. He says we're one body, right, with many members. And if one member is hurting, all the members hurt with it. We're made to be together and to operate and to be giving of ourselves to one another. Andy Crouch wrote a book called Strong and Weak. It's a real small one. It's like one of those half-tall books and like this thick. So if you're not a reader, this one's attainable, okay? Um, Really, really brilliant, really simple, but really profound. I would say that this book changed my life. And so the book is called Strong and Weak, and it's all about what does it look like to flourish? And he says it's not about strong or weak. It's about the combination of both, living in both strength and vulnerability, living in both strength and weakness. And that's not a derogatory, that's not just a negative, but to be vulnerable and to know vulnerability gives you an opportunity to wield strength in a way that's not oppressive. Does that make sense? And it's really brilliant. Andy Crouch says, without a doubt, this is the greatest paradox of flourishing. It's only found on the other side of suffering. Specifically, our willingness to actively embrace suffering. Our mission in the world is to help individuals and whole communities and ultimately all humanity move toward flourishing. But to do so, especially to set free those who have suffered the most from idolatry, addiction, injustice, and tyranny, requires us to go where no one wants to go. Voluntary exposure to pain and loss. Those who try to wish away loss, to promise action without risk and life without vulnerability, participate themselves in a very destructive system that ensures suffering, loss, and death. Only those who have faced loss, who have drunk from the cup of undiluted vulnerability and have been rescued by a power infinitely beyond their own at the depths of their greatest need can offer hope stronger than the idol's word of fear. We are called to engage with others where the war is raging. And Crouch says, if we're only living for our own flourishing, that's missing what flourishing is made to be. To really flourish is to look around and say there is a communal call to flourishing. I can't flourish if you're not. That's not how God made us. We think individualistically often when it comes to our faith. And God did not make us for that. God made us for community. So we flourish or we don't. And right now, because the world is not flourishing, that will hold us back as well, right? As we engage, flourishing increases. It's not a zero sum where I get, and by getting, I take away from others. When we give, everyone gains. Does that make sense? 
It's not a zero-sum game. Now, we just celebrated Thanksgiving. The million things to be thankful for, right? People are posting all day about family gatherings, about incredible food, ways that God has shown up and blessed them and gifted them. So many reasons to be thankful for. And I had this thought over the weekend. I want to test it out. This is not written in Scripture, but I'm uh, knocking this around in my head. I think Thanksgiving that does not lead to generosity is broken. Thanksgiving that does not lead to generosity is broken. Or maybe, maybe I could soften that up a little bit and call it incomplete or not really fully true or not full. Thanksgiving ought to lead us to generosity because I have been given so much that makes me want to give. And I grow in the grace of giving because I've received so much. I need to grow in that grace. I need to experience true thanksgiving that leads to generosity, and maybe you do too. A natural response to thanksgiving is generosity. So here's the thing. You can't be a peacemaker, and I can't be a peacemaker if we haven't first become peace receivers. And here's what I mean by that. You can't really give what you don't have. You look around and you see all the brokenness around you in others and the world. Do you recognize your great need as well? Do you recognize your need for peace? I mean, I'll be honest with you. I slept horribly last night. I had stuff going on where I felt like I was just getting attacked. Fear and some anger were creeping in. I spent a good uh, more time than I wanted to in the middle of the night awake, tossing and turning, and then just, God, what is going on? It's ironic, isn't it, that I'm preaching about peace this morning, and I felt like it was far from me in the middle of the night. And I don't think that's coincidental. I think we have an enemy who wages war against us and tries his hardest often successfully, to steal the peace that God has for us. And I just need to be reminded of the peace that Jesus already bought, the peace that the Spirit has already given. Be reminded of, live up into that again, right? So last night, I did this weird thing. It might be weird to you. I got up, I went to the living room, my family's asleep, and out loud, I just rebuked fear. Said, in Jesus' name, you have no place. You don't belong. And I was able to go to sleep. Like, there's something there. And I did it again this morning. And I want to keep doing it. As much as the enemy might want to destroy peace within, I want to say, no, you can't. You can't have me. To be a peacemaker means to be a peace receiver. And I have received that peace, and I want to live in it, and I want you to live in it. If you have recognized your own need for peace, Jesus is there with great generosity, and he will give it to you. When you bow your need, your knees to Jesus, he shows up, and he gives. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14 says, we who were once far off have been brought near by Jesus' sacrifice to engage in the war and bring us to peace 
Jesus sacrificed. And when we lay our brokenness at his feet, we get peace in return. We recognize our need. And then we receive the peace that Jesus offers through his sacrifice. And then we, in turn, recognize the peace that is needed around us. And we sacrifice ourselves to make that peace and bring it to others and help restore them as well. That's peace, and that's peacemaker. And then there's this phrase called son of God. This is a Hebrew expression. So lots of times we could read this and say, blessed are the peacemakers because God will call them his children, right? Because they will be accepted and included by God. And that's not really what it's getting at. This is a Hebrew expression. Often somebody would be described in Hebrew as a son of something, if that's how they... Um, if that's how an attribute of theirs. So they were kind of low on adjectives. And so if you were an encouraging person, you would you'd be called a son of encouragement. If you were a merciful person, you'd be called a son of mercy. Barnabas in Acts 4.36, he's called the son of encouragement. And he's done that not because encouragement gave birth to him, right? Or encouragement called Barnabas his own, but because that's the way Barnabas lived and operated. He was an encouraging person to be around. So if peacemakers are called sons of God, what kind of people are peacemakers? They're godly people. What he's saying here is, if you engage in the act of peacemaking, you're engaging in the very work of God. This is what God is doing. You will be like God as you engage in peacemaking. You will represent. You will reflect. You will show what God is like. You will be called a son of God, not, not as a way of earning it. That's not what he's talking about here. And it's not even about coming to Jesus in faith. He's saying, uh, like, while that's true, what here is saying is, as you live as a peacemaker, you reflect the character and nature and activity of God in the world around. Said a little differently, peacemakers are people who are imitating the God of peace. They're taking their cue from God, reflecting God in this world, and participating in the very work of God himself. Jesus reflects this in his own character. He's called the Prince of Peace. And as he brings peace, he makes peace, and he leaves peace in his wake. And that's what he calls us into. When we live as peacemakers, we're engaged in the very work of God. So we're called into being peacemakers, recognizing our own need, receiving peace from God. We join the work of engaging the war of brokenness all around us, being sacrificial forces of redemption and restoration. You can do this this week. If you have received peace from God, he's calling you into peacemaking. Recognize your own need. Recognize how Jesus has already met that need. And look around you. Where do you see brokenness? And where, where do you sense a call to sacrifice, to help?